sequence of Donna Sila Pawana is is good for reflection because uh, many times in in a country like this, the Western world, the interest is in Pawana and uh, that is uh, we want to meditate, we want to become enlightened, we want peaceful mental states, deep samadhi, uh, attainments, achievements and all the attractiveness that of the, of the uh, that we can imagine having through uh, developing uh, meditation meditation techniques, and then the Dhanasila, Sometimes in the in the Asian countries, there's so much emphasis on dana, on generosity. In Thailand, for example, is uh, society is kind of culturally. This whole cultural kind of ethos, its zeitgeist, is is dana, is generosity. It's part of a whole way of you know of looking at life. Being generous is, is kind of the essence 
of their, you know, social values. <clears throat> so dana, and, and that is, uh, you know, when one looks at this sense of dana or generosity, it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, a way of getting rid of selfish tendencies, of, of uh, finding joy in life. And when we live for the welfare of others, uh, share what we have, uh, when we're generous, and so forth, then we, we experience a lot of joy in, in our life. At least I do. I speak for myself. <clears throat> if I think only of what I want, what I pra- want, want to do, and my practice, even my altruism of wanting to become enlightened to save all sentient beings, it might be based on a, on a kind of altruistic bodhisattva ideal, uh, it still can be done in a very selfish way, you know, of, of I'm dedicating myself to this highest goal. <clears throat> and then I become convinced that, uh, you know, the rest isn't important. Uh, day-to-day generosity, sharing, giving, is, uh, you know, that's for people that just maybe, you know, we can even get quite snooty about it. That somehow we're a step above those who practice dana. We, we're, we're on the higher path. And so you can develop a real kind of, uh, sense of superiority and uh, conceit by being attached to, to the altruism of uh, complete enlightenment for the welfare of all sentient beings. Where dana, in its kind of everyday, mundane, ordinariness, is 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 offering, you know, like putting food in the alms bowl or doing your chore or offering something just without asking for any kind of result or appreciation or even expecting a, a thank you or even somebody to notice. It's this attitude of giving, sharing, as uh, if, if, if one develops this quality, then you find that that is, uh, the, you begin to enjoy life. There's a joyousness in, in one's life that you can't have if, if it's only centered in self-attainment or obsessions with, with your own views and opinions. Or doing things in order to be rewarded, like being generous in order to gain the approval of others, or making merits. In the next life you might be born in a higher place than the position you're in this one. So there's always a sense of doing something to get something. Or it can be compulsive, just part of the, you know, you feel guilty if you're not. So this is where they kind of mix together, where dana, sila, pavana, you know, it's not just these are, this is the limitation of thought. You have one concept, uh, one, two, three. Uh, First dana, then sila, then pavana. But uh, actually the reality of of, uh, this realm is not, is not 
defined or confined to that sequence. But an encouragement to actually uh, reflect the results of, of even your own generosity. Uh, maybe you're a very generous giving person and then you feel uh, somehow people don't appreciate all you've done. And then that is, uh, so you're, you're not enjoying being generous because you you feel hurt or um, unhappy because nobody notices all your your good works. Well, then that is a point of dukkha, isn't it? A sense of I, you know, I want, I would like somebody to at least say thank you for my generosity. At least acknowledge, at least I have performed my chore properly, and. Uh, at least I can, yeah, you know, expect a little bit of recognition, but even that attitude, if you notice, is, is, uh, you know, if one follows that, then the, then the, then no longer does one receive the joyfulness of, of selfless giving. And the sila is, uh, you know, taking, say, putting, taking responsibility for action. Living in the world, what we what we do with our bodies, what we say, with our speech, and so the general advice is: do good, <clears throat> refrain from doing evil. So then, this is uh, you know, this is taking on more, like putting boundaries on behavior. So we we uh, we. Uh, Take the five precepts or the eight precepts, ten precepts, the upasampada and so forth. These are ways of, of uh, developing awareness around bodily action, speech. So in the attitude of refraining from um, Intentionally harming other creatures, like the first precept, Bhanadibhata Viramani, is a Bhanadibhata refrain from intentionally harming, malevolent harming, say, another human being. And say, this is, this is, these are not like moral imperatives given from above, but they're guidelines for behavior to develop and cultivate a more a responsible way of living, more sensitive way, a respect for the rights of others to coexist on this planet. Not, not only other human beings, but eventually one can expand it to all living creatures. So they in the monastic uh, a sense of bhanadibhata, it's uh, respecting the life of, of all living creatures. So this takes awareness too, to, to uh, you know, to, you're not just living this life for, for your own benefit and that, but you're also learning to respect the, can, the people that you're living with, the society you're in, the the uh, environment itself, respecting the planet and the universe that we're living in. And in the Pawana, 
then is the meditation in which we uh, can practice, uh, re- recognize, or realize ultimate truth, or paramatta sacha, or the paramatta dhamma. So the the first two, dana sila, are also, say, for those who, who who don't really care about nibbana very much, but would love to have a a happier life in the world, then you know, one way of, of developing a, a joyful heart and a sense of self-respect is definitely dhanasila. Because these are the generosity and and being responsible for how you live, what you what you say and do with your body, that that creates a sense of, uh, you know, the of respect. You're living in a way you can respect yourself. At least speaking for myself, this is, this is how it affects me. I respect that in others when I see them, when I see generosity, uh, unselfish giving. Somehow that moves me. That I I respect that. That is something I admire when I see it in others or people who are are not just using their their bodies or their speech just heedlessly to without taking responsibility just using them for self-indulgence pleasure exploiting others <clears throat> without consideration or care or concern for how it affects anyone else Then Pawana is uh, cultivating the path or the way of non-suffering. And so Pawana is, uh, is generally what most of us start with, what we're interested in. At least uh, in my own case, I wasn't particularly interested in Donna Sila in the beginning, but in Pawana. Uh, this was not this was this is what inspired me when when I came across Buddhism when I my first uh, memories of being interested in uh, the teaching of the Buddha was in the meditation practice because of the suffering the suffering that uh, that I had at the time, you know, and it's still I was still only about twenty, twenty-one years old, but the suffering was caused to the way I thought, the self-centeredness, the the self-consciousness, the the tendency to uh, you know be caught in in all kinds of fears of rejection and anxieties about the future. When you're that young, you know you how you look is so important, and and whether you're you're attractive and and people like you, and uh, one can suffer enormously by feeling kind of diminished or rejected or looked down on or not appreciated, uh, either through actual incidences or through just one's own feelings. I could create whole scenarios of rejection that had no grounds in in any kind of real way. 
because fear, delusion, and uh, that that anxiety that's caused from self-centeredness and self-consciousness, where you see yourself in a in a hostile universe, surrounded by all kinds of conditions that that can uh, cause you a lot of misery, complications, and suffering. And yet, uh, I wasn't in, you know, it wasn't that my life was particularly unpleasant. You know, when I look back, I think I had quite a, you know, very nice parents and born in a nice society, you know, a lot of good things. <laughs> Nothing, I was not an abused child or, or uh, mistreated in any, you know, big way or anything, just the usual... Uh, problems of that any boy has in any society but the suffering was uh, this is when people ask me why uh, why I chose Buddhism because I realized at that young age how much I suffered and this suffering was just the way I thought I thought uh, the critical mind was highly developed and the fear, the anxiety uh, this, this, uh, that generated from the, these delusions. I saw myself always in, a, in, in danger. And so there's strong desire to, to retire from the world, to go away and hide somewhere. Like the, uh, it was more like hermetic life, go off into a cave. I remember thinking of the, the attractiveness. I started taking an interest in yoga. I read about yogis in India and, and look at books with pictures of yogis doing these uh, incredible postures, uh, standing on one leg for 50 years or something like this, <laughs> hanging upside down from a tree covered in ashes. And... and um, <clears throat> No matter how ridiculous it was, I, I admired this kind of um, this this sense of doing it by myself was not even the even the these kind of seemingly impossible things were inspired me. Actually, they did not repel me. What what I found most threatening was social events, uh, the, just having to fit into a middle class society that I didn't really like. I never liked my own society very much. <clears throat> so I, uh, you know, inclined towards wanting to get away from it, get out of it. Well then the, the becoming a Buddhist monk was, you know, quite in line with that aspiration but still the, the the tendencies the self the selfishness and the the uh, the sense of, of me trying to to uh, get away to to hide away to move away from all the things that threatened me and frightened me trying to find a place in the world where 
I could feel comfortable and safe as a person. And uh, and this was this was very much what motivated me and and in and directed me into monasticism, Buddhist monasticism. And then the uh, my meeting with Lung Po Cha. Uh, that was an interesting one because his whole movement was pulling me out of that mode and 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 putting me into a context of being the recipient of. Donna, living this mendicant's life and receiving, uh, being a receiver of the generosity of others. So even though I didn't feel particularly generous myself, because I was a, a monk in Thailand where people were generous, this this started me thinking about uh, started contemplating what dana really means. You know, that the beauty of it. Because uh, I was always very, this, this brought into my consciousness a lot of uh, gratitude. Because just being, uh, you know, having that much generosity directed to me helped me to, to develop a little more confidence and trust in human beings. Where where this generosity may be, you know, it's not that I'm from a stingy family or a, or a society that lacks generosity, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not, it doesn't have the importance, the significance that you find it's given in a country like Thailand or Sri Lanka. You're not really, you know, you're not really, that's not, you know, they're encouraged to be, to share your things and, and that, but it's not, not the ideal of the society. The ideal was much more one of, uh, get it, being a winner, being a champion, you know, proving yourself. <clears throat> well, these kind of ideals are, you know, they're, they're not very uh, peaceful ideals to want to always prove yourself to be a winner, to be a, a success. Is not uh, these are not mental states that that bring peace or joy into one's life. You, uh, the best you can do is maybe when you do have moments where you actually win something, uh, you have this this kind of inspired feeling. You know, so, you know, you become somebody who says you're the, you're the champion, and there's a moment there of great happiness, but you can't sustain it, isn't it? It just goes very quickly, and then, then you think, yeah, but uh, what about tomorrow? Will I be a champion tomorrow? Will you still love me tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> Now, reflecting on the on the being the recipient of generosity, uh, and then the the Lumpacha's emphasis on what they call the samana sanya, the the way of reflecting on the life of a samana of an alms mendicant, and I know I'm no I'm dependent on the generosity of others. 
things like this, I found quite moving to me because I realized I'd put myself in a position when you ordain as a bhikkhu, you know, you you can't have any money and, and all the kind of things that supported a sense of independence and success as a person, you know, and the values of my own culture, I'd given up. You know, suddenly I was no longer independent and, uh, you know, I could take care of myself. I actually needed uh, support because I couldn't, didn't have any money. Uh, I needed somebody to give me some, some, something to eat at least. In Thailand, of course, it's not a problem. It's so much part of a culture. So, so uh, then the the, uh, the sense of this offering of of food, which we do every day, you know, like here, like today, isn't it? This morning, the, just the offering of the food uh, received in, in a formal way. It's it's uh, it's formality. It's uh, tradition. And and it shouldn't be seen in just as some something you've got to do in order because uh, to maintain purity with vinaya and keep all the rules strictly. And sometimes we do get caught up in in uh, in trying to in, in our kind of attachment to doing it the right way. Otherwise, it's not quite right, and you're a little bit you can't really appreciate the the generosity because uh, maybe it wasn't received properly and so we can get very make problems around this if we want to but the point of the generosity is is what i've what i emphasize is that intention of people like the lay lay support lay supporters coming here with that intention of offering wanting you know, not thinking of yourself, thinking, what am I going to get out of this winter's retreat here at Chithurst? Uh, you know, get a chance to meditate, listen to Ajahn Sumato, and see, see what, what can I get out of it? But I assume you're all totally dedicated just to support, totally selfless offering to support and encourage us in our pawana. Meditation or pawana is the way some of the way we sometimes the way we grasp it makes us very selfish. It's just you know you know I want this I've got to have that I've got to have my time my space my samadhi practice I've got to have a certain level of quietness and so there's there's a lot of self in in, in our practice in, in how we approach getting getting attainments, getting jhanas, having nimittas, having stages, and, and so forth. All, you know, if, if seen from the position where, of, uh, you know, attainment and achieve, achievement from a mind that's been conditioned towards achieving. Like the American mindset is uh, an arahant is a real winner. It's a champion, isn't it? In, in the, you know, from the con- culturally conditioned view of my mind, an arahant is a real winner. You know, he's conquered defilements, number one. Now that make now that that's just a, a cultural 
uh, way of interpreting interpreting that that uh, concept of arahant. It's not an American concept. So I take I read the Pali canon, find these Pali words, and then immediately the arahant is perfectly enlightened, and that's what I want. I want to become an arahant, you know, uh, like a, an American boy should, you know, aim for the best. <laughs> Get get to the top so in, in culturally you know this is how the mind's conditioned to interpret oftentimes the the scriptural teachings but then uh real Bhavana is not an attainment or an achievement. But it's it's like you're you're kind of lured into the Sangha with promises of enlightenment. And then and then uh, then what the when then, then a good teacher gets you to look at your own desires. So I mean the, it's it's a it's a skillful means of of attracting you towards something, you know, because on the level of of an unenlightened consciousness, you have to present, make it look attractive, and not, or at least inspire, make it inspiring enough to make somebody want to try it out. So, in the life in in Wat Pa Pong uh, with Lung Po Cha. His, uh, of course, this was uh, the teaching and uh, developing insights into the Four Noble Truths. This is what what I heard him teaching. <laughs> and the previous year, I had developed uh, a lot of the year of my Samanera, uh, where I was a hermit. Uh, was, uh, you know, just investigating these Four Noble Truths. So I was primed. I was, uh, by the time I got to uh, Wat Pa Pong, Ajahn Chah's monastery, I was primed for this, for this Four Noble Truths. And so the ten years that I spent with Lung Po Chah in Thailand was very much, you know, the, uh, this has been the emphasis, the, the practice, the suffering, the cause, the cessation, and the way of non-suffering. So suffering is not an inspi- inspiring word, is it? it? It's not something that that you know. Say, what did Buddha teach that taught all the, the, there there is suffering? Right? That doesn't sound very interesting to me. Why don't we talk about immortal love? That's inspiring, isn't it? Uh, something you know that uplifts and inspires them. So this is where mindfulness is, uh, you know, getting trying to like I was saying this morning at breakfast how nibbana is described as the highest happiness, which is a kind of you know not very accurate, but it it is inspiring, you know. So heaven is is the highest. You know, we think of heaven as being the best. You know, I want to go to heaven means I want to have this 
this, this eternal happiness forever. I want to go to heaven and be happy and safe and, and, and have no more worries and just have beauty and refinement and pleasure and comfort and safety and all the best forever. And then Nibbana is higher than that. So then what is this Nibbana that's high? When you, when you try to uh, think of heaven and, uh, you know, as the very best of anything you can think of, where there's only love and happiness and beauty and joy and pleasure and comfort and safety, all these words, you know, what we want, what creates our desire is we want, where we will we'll be forever loved in a totally safe place for, for eternity and where we'll be beautiful forever. We won't grow old and we'll, we'll, we'll never get sick or have pain or any of the nastiness of, of that we experience in this life. So then, in uh, Four Noble Truths, by taking dukkha or suffering as the first noble truth, it's um, because this is a realm of dukkha that we're experiencing, this realm, this sense realm. It is a realm of where we're, we're constantly uh, experiencing some form of irritation, discomfort, dissatisfaction, just on the natural level of sense, sense uh, experience, isn't it? What is having a human body about? Being an, an individual human being on this planet, you know, it's it's uh, your body, you know, from the time it's born to the time it dies, is subjected to the vicissitudes of life, the the temperature, the day, the night, the the aging process, constitution, whether you're vigorous and healthy or sickly and weak. Some people are born with all kinds of disabilities and weak constitutions and some are born with healthy ones and, and then it changes. You know, these are, these are, this realm of the senses is, is like this. It is, you know, we're constantly trying to, to protect ourselves from suffering too much. So there's a lot of fear and reactivity and anxiety about the future because the future, what does the future hold for us? Increasing age. Every one of us is getting older day by day. And getting older means, you know, doesn't mean that you're going to get better and better, is it? It's usually getting older, it means it gets worse and worse in terms of physical uh, you know, your appearance and your alacrity and vigor and health and all that. Body starts wearing out. The sense realm, isn't it? It's just a, this constant impingement of uh, contact through sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. And then the thinking process. How we, most of our suffering is around thinking. We can bear with the sensory, you know, we find, you know, we can... When we have to, we can we can bear with the 
the ugliness that we might see with the eyes or the cacophonous noises through the ears and the stenches and the bad taste and the pain in the body and all the rest. These, uh, you know, we have ability to bear with, but we can really create enormous anguish and despair with the way we think, even when we're healthy. So when I was 20, 21 years old, I was healthy, young, Uh, I had no. I have a good constitution. Still have pretty good constitution for such for such an old body. And so I, you know, it was good looking even. And and uh, intelligent. Had so many gifts. And yet the suffering was, uh, over, I mean, I even thought of suicide many times. I never, never really attempted it, but it, it certainly attracted me when life got too, when I thought too much about life, and, and, it, and I'd get overwhelmed with despair. So, so then you, you know, there's this, this thinking process, this fear, anxiety, an endless kind of, Obloki, a procession of, of anxiety around life, self-consciousness, worry, uh, feelings of, you know, just being unable to cope with difficult situations, fear of, of being hurt, of being rejected, of not being a champ, fear of failure, fear of mediocrity. I was conceited enough to want to really be a champion. The idea of being just an ordinary bloke, a mediocre American, white American male mediocrity was like hell for me. <laughs> that image, you know, I couldn't satisfy myself with, with just being, you know, doing what you're supposed to do what the society, what your parents expect you to do, get a job, get married, have children, settle down, and uh, and try to live the, you know, the American dream without being highly ambitious. But I also had the conceit and the drive to be very ambitious. But not on the worldly level. It didn't, I've never wanted to be president of the United States. <laughs> Never been that crazy. <laughs> so mediocrity and uh, being ordinary. Also, at one time, I mean, thinking, why couldn't I be this way? Why couldn't I just be an ordinary guy? You know, just satisfied with with the things that most most seem to be. You know, and weren't that ambitious. So this suffering was, you know, began to, you know, it, at least this, this kind of suffering was, was the very thing that kind of propelled me. And, and, and uh, what I could recognize when I first came across Buddhism was uh, a kind of insight 
to the fact that there is a way, there is a possibility of getting out of this trap. And not just to resign myself to, to mediocrity or, or that, but in an, you know, a real uh, interesting, I, I found Buddhism interesting and it, you know, it's some, it resonated the, uh, very quickly. You know, I didn't have any great problem with uh, understanding Buddhism. So then, this um, this dukkha was the was the compelling factor that that brought me into the pavana or the the meditation. Then through that, through the pavana, through committing myself into monastic life, then the generosity, the dana, the sila, I began to to recognize the value of dana sila. So there is a tendency to think of this this sequence, dana sila pavana, is you have to be generous first, develop enough <clears throat> Dana Barami uh, in order to keep the Sila and then you keep the Sila long enough you develop enough Sila Barami for Pawana. <clears throat> that's the that's the logical sequence from the structure itself. So I remember in, when we first came to England in 1977 at Hampstead uh, Lung Cha was teaching Pawana right off and this was a time of the uh, the kind of um, punk fashions. And so in in Hampstead, Belsize Park, in that area, at the time, there were a lot of uh, of uh, we call people that live in houses that squatters. A lot of the the big houses that are now very expensive flats and that in Hampstead were were inhabited by squatters. And uh, some of these squatters would come to the Hampstead Vihara. <laughs> and these were not the kind of uh, the Hampstead uh, literati or <laughs> that <laughs> And uh, so then um, some of the Asian people started questioning Ajahn Chah teaching meditation to to all these people that obviously didn't have any sila or dana or never offered anything. <laughs> and we could hardly pay for the electricity at Hampstead. Because nobody was, was you know, was into, into dana, the people it tended to visit, or sila. And so then... The, this idea of, of they have to teach dana first, then sila, and then pawana, the kind of, you know, the higher level uh, that you deserve if you if you have good sila and you're generous. But Ajahn Chah's uh, response to this question was, you know, you you <clears throat> you aim to meet people where their interest is, where they're awakened, where they what they're interested in. You you go to that point. <clears throat> because uh, uh, people were interested, they came to the Hampstead Bihar for that, for that kind of, uh, they wanted to learn how to meditate. 
And maybe they, they didn't particularly want to reach Nibbana, but they wanted, you know, they recognized some, something or other. Maybe they wanted even, in those days there were these, uh, this Tibet, phony Tibetan writer, what was it? Lobsam Rampa was popular, the third eye and whatnot. I don't know how many people I've met. Then what was your first contact with Buddhism? And they said, Lobsam Rampa. And of course, I thought, this is a pathetic beginning. But it is a beginning, isn't it? <laughs> if, it, if, it inter- if it awakens you in some way, or, you know, who am I to, to this, this, you know, you have to have to be awakened only through the pure teachings of the Pali Canon. That's maybe holding a standard too high. Anything that that awakens you in, in whatever you know, I mean, even if it's not exactly the best, but it does. It's something in you opens up that had been closed off. But then Lung Po Cha stated that, that if, once they, if they start with Pawana, they eventually realize the value in, in the, of Dana Sila. So this is more like what I'm pointing to is, is that the thinking mind, the linear way of thinking of one, two, three, eightfold path, four noble truths, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, the, three, the three refuges, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, one, two, three, there's the six senses, <laughs> seven factors of enlightenment, thirty-seven bodhi dhammas, and and fifty-two jada sikas, and on and on like this. It sounds. These are. This is all about one, two, three, A, B, C. The the thinking process is it functions on that. You you know you have A and then B and then C. So pointing out how the thinking process is that way. It's limited to to this dualism. Another technique that Lung Po Cha, you know, the, the statement of true but not right, right but not true. You'd have these conundrums and, and you'd kind of, you know, you'd make a statement that was, you felt was true and you'd say, true but not right, right but not true. Because on a logical level, the thinking mind, if it's true, then it must be right. And if it's right, it must be true. That's how my logical mind works. They say, true but not right, right but not true. That puts me in a state of not being sure quite what that means. It puts doubt into the mind. And yet one begins to notice that that one that you know how much on the thinking level of personal needs as a personality i I wanted clarity and precision, logic and reason, definitions, good definitions of the concepts, proof you know like a scientist this is this works because we can prove it with our you know our technology uh the things that, that the, the kind of conditioning of the mind was very much one of based on logic and reason, on the thought process, on one, two, three, A, B, C. And yet the, the awakening experience with Buddhism wasn't a logical one. I didn't know 
what it was that 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 awakened me when I came across Buddhism the first time. Because it wasn't a reasonable thing. It wasn't a reasonable experience. You know, I couldn't explain it and, and, or justify it. Still to can't. It just happened. It was like that. Suddenly, something happened in me that that uh, that uh, I couldn't see any reason for it happening because it wasn't a thought or a, or a reasonable uh, experience, but it was real. It's definitely real and definitely known. When I started thinking about it, then I could easily put it down. Oh, maybe I was just a little, you know, you know, maybe I ate too many Mars bars that day. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe it was just the attack of madness. Uh, you know, it's uh, trying to figure it out. I just, I don't know what happened. What's happening to me? Can I trust this? You know, and then it's so uncertain. So what to do? What should I do? Where should I go? <clears throat> and and the mind immediately wanted to, to make something, to get something out of it, to prove it, to justify it, to understand it on the level of concepts and thoughts. <clears throat> so that... Because it did happen with with reading a book on Buddhism, then of course the the natural in, in inclination is towards trying to find out more about more about Buddhism. So that that brought me into the you know the, this trying to find literature, what was available on anything that was Buddhist. Lobsam Rampa wasn't wasn't out yet. That was in 1955. So. So I had, you know, it was Alan Watts and D.T. Suzuki. Those were the ones that I depended on in the beginning. So in, uh, you know, the... uh, then as I began to develop meditation, have more insight, I began to just observe how the thinking process, the year I was a Samanera, living as a hermit. If you live alone, you know, and you don't have any, any outward stimulation or anyone to talk to or distraction, you can go absolutely crazy. You know, it's like um, it's being isolated, like solitary confinement. You know, it's dangerous, in fact, because if you're... An, your mind just goes really mad sometimes when you when all the the things that you depend on for keeping this reasonableness in life, making things so you can cope with things you want them ordered like this, and you've got this way of dealing with doubt or anger or fear. Uh, there's all kinds of in 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 an average person's life, you know, of ways of of distracting yourself through eating things or watching television or doing something or other, chatting on the phone. But when you're in a, in a little hut uh, and uh, with yourself for a year, very interesting. 
because the mind did, my rational mind went stark raving crazy. You know, it, it became totally irrational. I started experiencing all kinds of irrational things. And, uh, you know, it was like having, like having a breakdown or experience of madness. Because, you know, I couldn't control it, you know. I, could, I couldn't force it by being alone. I didn't have the, the, any references outside the present moment or the situation I was in. So I did, you know, I'd do dis- things to distract myself, whatever was available, they bring me some kind of medicines or stomach medicines. If they had anything in English on them, you know, like labels, I'd, I'd just start reading the labels over and over <laughs> and, and memorize the contents of, of uh, you know, of Thai medicines if it was written in English. And uh, just for something to do to fill up the mind that I... You know, I knew how to read, and reading was obviously a way that I dealt with, you know, distraction, you know, to make me feel safe and secure by reading things, having things to read. But because the, the, uh, the emphasis was on awareness, on mindfulness, my preceptor, you know, he just gave me very short teaching on the five indriyas or five faculties Satta Virya Sati Samadhi Panya, and he said, Sati, that's the middle, that's the kingpin. Sati, and then Virya Samadhi, Satta and Panya, this balancing act of of effort with concentration and faith with wisdom. So it was, you know, and and, and it was through translation, because at the time I couldn't understand Thai language. So something in me was open even to the madness I was experiencing because I began to just notice that that if I just didn't make a problem that this this thing would would go away and uh, you know if I if I started if I started thinking about it Am I crazy, or should I leave, or should I, you know, I could make, you know, scary scenarios of I'm going to, you know, I'm having a breakdown, I'm going mad. Because that's what it seemed like on the, on the, on the, ra- on the way that uh, the mind was conditioned to think and experience life. But this, this intuitive sense was developed, was developing. So the, the, there was a sense of trusting in just watching and observing rather than in trying to control and, and get rid of. And then, the, of course, the Four Noble Truths became, you know, very much of, you know, things that I found very helpful. This is suffering. Suffering is like this. When I watched the suffering, it was just, you know, how my thinking, I create, I frighten myself by thinking. Fearing, uh, you know, and, and uh, just in everything, you know, like one's whole past started coming up, memories from childhood and adolescence and so forth, every memory and 
and and they uh, that seemed to be possible started coming into consciousness. But then the sense of observing observing the, the impermanence of these conditions. So this was after you know after a few months I began to to really something kind of it was like a catharsis you know just just something changed in me at that time because uh, there was a sense of of uh, confidence in this awareness and that that even though I could and I could endure going mad and being alone and and all the kind of mental states that if I if I didn't make a problem about them they'd all they they just go their own way and so there is a confidence and a in the in the in developing this awareness, which was very much the way I interpreted uh, the Four Noble Truths. So I incorporate these truths inside me, and say, "What is dukkha right now? What is the cause of suffering right now? The three kinds of desire: what bhava dhanha, vipava dhanha, gama dhanha. What are these right now? You know, observing." And getting to know, investigating, desire, and it, and then the cessation of desire, and exploring. And if desire, if I can observe desire, that which observes desire could not be desire. And putting that question into my mind, if 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 that which is aware of desire. Can one desire be aware of another desire? And just by asking yourself these kind of questions, this kind of inquiry into the nature of things, can, you know, ask yourself, can your desire know another desire? Or what is it that knows desire? What is it that is aware and sees desire as an object? That can know bhavadanhas like this, vipavadanhas like this. Gama Dhanha is like this. And so more and more you, you, you separate. You no longer say that the self-view was very much, there was no separation. I'm desires, desires are me. I'm the body, body is me. I'm my thoughts, my memories. My memories are me. Everything is me. Everything is mine. And and it's just uh, you're caught in this in this uh, in this suffocating delusion that is uh, unbearable when you when you really look at it. You can see why people take to drink and drugs and and you know have to spend their time running around trying to get away because actually living with with the conditioning of one's mind without any reference point outside it is is horrible the hell realm, we create the hell realm ourselves. So in in that respect by learning and through through sati sampatanya, then the, the virya and the samadhi, the effort and concentration, these are developed also as we 
gain more confidence. Not through me trying to get concentrated mind. Like when I first, before I did this, I was very much into trying to get samadhi through concentrating the mind. It's some kind of attainment to, to try to get these different levels of samadhi. Because the, the mind was still caught in the, in the, in the rational conditioning uh, thoughts and cultural conditioning. So then the sata and panya, faith and wisdom, like the sada is a, is a Pali word translated generally as faith or confidence, a trust maybe. It's not believing in something like believing in Buddhism. As you practice and you witness the results and things, then your confidence increases. When you can prove something, you see something in a direct way, you're not just believing the teacher anymore or the scriptures, but you actually... That's believing in, in, in the ideas of Buddhism. But the sada is, is a faculty or an, called an indra. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's and if we have no sada, we can't do anything. You know, we're caught in just too many doubts and, and we defeat ourselves with our own doubts and, and uh, despair. But if we have sada, this is this lifts us out of, at least for a moment, out of that negativity. You have confidence in something, and by uh, developing from that sada, then the panya develops, and then they they balance each other out: faith and wisdom, effort, concentration, mindfulness, is the middle point. So, and sometimes the way I talk sounds like I'm just talking about mindfulness. And, you know, mindfulness, mindfulness, sati-sampatanya, and, and I don't talk a lot about samadhi. But, but that's not my, I'm not putting or diminishing the value of samadhi or concentration. But we, we really, you know, as we recognize this, this, uh, begin to value this mindfulness, then we can, then the, the possibility of effort and concentration develop in a balanced way. Where if there's too much samadhi, we go into trances or, you know, just, you're not, you know, you're not, uh, not the right kind of effort. You just get, or get dull, again, dull samadhi kind of. I remember, you know, in my monastic life, I've been through that where I had very dull samadhi. And I remember sitting there in a, in a kind of stupid state. <laughs> Is this Nibbana? <laughs> I'm not really suffering. Certainly... And yet it was certainly better than than the kind of madness of my thinking process, I must admit. 
I did prefer dull, the dull samadhi to the kind of irritating, self-critical madness of my thinking process. But then, uh, but then, you know, if you trust, as your confidence increases, and uh, this you can, this this sadha can only, you know, as you practice and and observe, really notice, pay attention, even to even to things, you know, not even if you don't want to practice, observing this, not wanting to practice, not wanting to meditate. You know, everything is part of it. So it's not a matter of really having a lot of faith in meditation and really going for it, because that's the champion syndrome again. The really good meditator that does all the right things, has all the insights and becomes an arahant. Winner! (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes you go through stages where we don't like even Buddhism anymore or hate monks and and the Ajans and so forth. Anything, Theravada Buddhism becomes, <laughs> gets sick when somebody talks about <clears throat> Pali canon and scripture and you do anything to, because, you know, what, this is, you know, if this is the, what the emotional reactions one is having. And this is, you know, observing it, not criticizing or or justifying, or getting caught in the rational reaction to it, trying to understand it through analysis, but it's like this. The suffering of, of attachment to, or the reaction, aversion, that went towards something that we, before we, we valued. So it's all grist for the mill, in other words. It's learning to use the way it is. And whatever way it is for you, you use that. You know, so the laziness or lack of confidence or or um, doubts or whatever you know, whatever you happen to be experiencing, is if you, you know, if you're willing to use that to say it's like this feeling, aversion, disappoint, disillusionments like this. Being lazies like this, being selfish is like this, and and so you, you know, so I'm not saying that 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 how you should be, but encourage you towards an attitude to learn from the way it is. From this, then your the sata increases and the panya balances that. You say you develop these five faculties. But you don't have to think about it very much. Don't, am I developing the five faculties and then you start getting lost in trying to figure all that out. But these, these you know, over the years, the, this, this, this particular paradigm from five faculties has become very clear, you know, where great periods where I've forgotten all about it. But in, I found that the, the 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 value so much of the Theravada style teaching is that it uh, it does help. It's very useful towards understanding the way the mind works. 
know, the, it's, it's quite clearly described in, in a conventional form. <clears throat> and and in, the, in these kind of standards of four this and five that and six of this and seven of that, and, and it sound, can sound very sterile and, and kind of lack and not very inspiring. <clears throat> but over the years, these, these lists of things also can be very useful references towards uh, informing your intellect on what, you know, how to see, you know, the, having given you terminologies and, and, and uh, structures to, to use for understanding on the intellectual level so that we're no longer just operating from the conditioning, the Western conditioned intellectual tendency. It's like learning an, another language, a scientific language. So I offer this for your reflection.